here we are. I ended up with both sermons this week, and they're both on the question of whether Christians ought to be judging others or not. I asked the morning crowd, what do you think the most popular verse for Christians to quote might be? I think it's John 3.16, maybe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and all that. Maybe some of you will say, how about Psalm 23? Uh, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil and all that, right? That might be true, right, for church people. Let me ask you this. If you went out on the street and you asked people, hey, what Bible verse would you most like Christians to know? My guess is they would quote us Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right? Judge not the world's message to Christians more than any other message is probably judge not. And sometimes that's warranted, right? I said this morning that the world in general wants everyone to affirm everyone and everything. Maybe 15 or 20 years ago, it was tolerance. Now, tolerance isn't enough. It has to be affirmation, right? Whatever you believe and whatever you do with yourself, that might not be my thing, but if it's good for you, great. We talked this morning about, I'm giving a little commercial, by the way, for you to go back and listen to or watch this morning's sermon, because it goes well with this one, right? Um, We said that the church, on the other hand, or religious institutions, tend to be nice. We try to make an environment of niceness for one another. The world wants everyone to affirm everyone and everything. The church wants us to just be nice. Jesus says, it seems right here, plain as day, just don't judge people. Seems like we have a nice consensus here. People out there, people in here, Jesus, are all like, just mind your own business and don't judge people, right? So should we? Should we just affirm everyone and everything and every belief and every practice? Should we just be nice to ourselves, one another, everyone? Should we just not ever make any judgments? I think to make sure that we get this crucial teaching of Jesus right as he comes toward the end of his famous sermon, we need to pay attention to his famous illustration, don't we? What is the illustration? Uh, Why do you look, verse 3, at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when you've got a board stuck in your own eye? I think one of the most annoying things about life is when you're trying to go about your day and then you have something stuck in your eye, right? I'll be going jogging and... Well, maybe the most annoying thing is when you actually inhale a small little bug or something. But after that, if it doesn't go in here, the, the worst thing is for it to get stuck in here, right? It's also annoying as a, as a person who wears corrective lenses when something happens to my windshield, right? When I have a little... Actually, my son threw a ball at me a couple of weeks ago, and there's a little crack on the side of my glasses, and it can barely see it, but it annoys me because I know it's there, and if I want to look over here, I have to look through the little crack, so I'm going to have to get that fixed. It's also a little awkward when I'm talking to you, and you've got some gunk in your eye. <laughs> Ladies who wear mascara, uh, if you have a big chunk of mascara in your eye, it's probably going to be hard for me to pay attention to what you're saying. I might just say, uh, maybe you should get your cell phone and just fix your mascara real quick, and then we'll talk, right? I probably wouldn't do that. 
That'd be awkward. <laughs> it's also weird when, when I'm talking to someone else and their glasses are fogged up or something, right? Because there's a barrier now between us. I mean, human eyes are, are not perfect to begin with, and now there's stuff in them or stuff on the windshield, right? It just doesn't work. It makes for poor visibility. If we were in a car and there was stuff on our windshield, we would use the windshield wipers and wipe them off. Actually, I was just standing over there during the first song, and I saw something on my glasses, and I said, what is that? And pulled it off, and there's a bug crawling all over the front of What is a bug doing on my glasses right as I'm about to give this illustration? What are we supposed to get from this illustration of Jesus? It's a famous one. There's a couple things. Let's pay close attention. Verse 3 indicates that, in fact, we all have gunk in our eyes. We all do. Who's got gunk in their eyes or something in their eyes in this little short parable? Well, there's the person with the speck in their eye, and there's also the person with the board in their eye. It's not just one person, but metaphorically here, all of us theoretically have this in our eyes. The person being helped by the, it turns out, hurtful helper, he's got something in his eye. And the hurtful helper himself has something even more significant in his eye. So the first thing is, verse 3, we've all got stuff in our eyes. We've all got stuff in our lives, Jesus is saying, that needs to be dealt with as we live our life in community together. What else does he want us to see? Well, verse 5, the stuff is supposed to come out. We're supposed to get it out. At the end of the parable, you've got uh, both people no longer with the junk in their eyes anymore. So the stuff's supposed to come out of our eyes. Jesus doesn't just say, quit worrying about each other's eyes. It's not a big deal if you cart around specks or boards in your eye. Uh, no, the eye surgery moves ahead ultimately. And then Jesus also says, implies, verse 5, that we are actually here to help one another get the junk out of our eyes. This is why we are in community together. Jesus doesn't just say, look, everybody worry about yourself. You know, you've got a mirror, take care of yourself. But in the story itself, Jesus is assuming that you're going to help one another with the junk that gets cluttered in your eye, with the junk in your life that weighs you down and keeps you from following hard after Jesus. To look in the mirror first doesn't mean that we don't also turn from the mirror and then turn to our sister and brother and help them with the stuff that they can't yet see in their eyes. So the strategy of the world and the church to just affirm everything, to just be nice and not bother with ourselves and one another, it turns out that's not apparently the Jesus way. And so that means that judge not can't mean ignore specks and boards and other stuff in yours and in one another's eyes. I named my middle son Owen after a 17th century English theologian named John Owen, 
And John Owen famously said, Christians, be always killing sin in you, or else the sin that's in you will be killing you. Be always killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. And it's like Jesus seems to be saying here in this parable, in this short illustration, be always diagnosing and removing the sins and the hindrances in your own life, or else, yeah, of course they'll mess with your life, but even more than that, you'll never be able to help others diagnose and remove the sins and the hindrances that stand in the way of their growth in grace. It's imperative that we are honest about ourselves so that we can genuinely be honest and helpful to one another. Helping someone grow as a Christian is therefore, it seems, not a job for a man with a wrecking ball. The point is not to, oh, look, there's a target, somebody with something in their life that needs to be removed. Here comes the wrecking ball. Now it's not there. This is the kind of heavy-handed approach, the kind of destructive, hurtful approach that Jesus is saying doesn't work. And you wonder if maybe as he's doing this, he's got the hypocritical Pharisees in the back of his mind, or maybe some of them are even sitting there on the mountainside with him. I'm not sure. Helping somebody grow as a Christian is not a job for a man with a wrecking ball. There are qualifications for the person who is going to helpfully do this kind of surgery on another Christian sister or brother. You've got to have some serious practice first. Would you want to have eye surgery? My wife had eye surgery before we left Korea because it was way cheaper and they're way better at it there than in most places on planet Earth. And, you know, the first thing that she did was to check and see, like, how reputable is this eye surgeon? They're going to, like, burn my eye with a laser and I'm going to sit there and let them do it. Let's make sure that this isn't, like, their first time, right? And the same goes in our, in our spiritual eye surgery. You've got to have some qualifications before you start poking at other people's eyes. It stands to reason. You've got to have experience first. And what does that experience look like? What qualifies you to be able to go and gently help someone spiritually with eye surgery? Well, unless you are yourself the perfect son of God, which you aren't, then nobody who lacks the experience of grace working on their own hearts, the kindness of God in leading them to repentance, Romans chapter 2, has any business getting involved in the life of a child of God who is trying to grow in God's grace. Unless you've grown painstakingly in God's grace, unless you know what it's like to stumble and to fall, and then to see and to sense the hand of the Heavenly Father uh, calling you as a child and lifting you up from where you've fallen, only to find yourself hand in hand with Him and back on your feet again, unless that's been your experience, then you have no business entering into the Father's work of this loving discipline that He works in all the children that He so loves. Now, I'm looking at it, you all here, I'm looking at 
the handful of you that have your cameras turned on uh, on Zoom. And the reality is that you're going through stuff. All of you are. And over time, by God's grace, probably I'll have a chance to talk with a lot of you about the stuff you're going through. Some of it may even be personal struggles with temptation and sin. This is to be expected. But if you all look up here at me, and what you see is a God talker who is a hypocrite, if you can sense that I'm somebody that never looks in the mirror, that never takes out my cell phone and hits the, the selfie button to just make sure that I don't have any gunk in my eyes, but always struts around with some kind of phony confidence, who never recognizes my own brokenness and my own failures, well, then you're never going to let me help you overcome your sin and your temptation, are you? You shouldn't, because I would be a hypocrite. And the same goes for all of us around as we live in community together. You are, we are all on the lookout for safe people with whom to share our struggles. And by God's grace, we're meant to be the kind of safe community, not safe to go on sinning, but safe to be honest about the sin against which we struggle so much. It turns out that uh, my wife and I both have genes, I guess, that mean we frequently have to go see the dentist. In fact, uh, since we've come to Switzerland, we've made very good friends, unfortunately, with the dental office in Milan, our little village. They know us by name and by face and all of our children. And, you know, down through the years of our almost 20 years of marriage, we've shelled out a lot of money uh, to dentists. The thing that we hate most, because we're paying these dentists big bucks, the thing that we hate most is when we go into the dental office, we sit in the chair, and they take their x-ray, and then they just start to scold us about our bad habits. Why do you drink so much soda and eat so much candy? You clearly don't know how to floss, and what's your problem? Have you never seen a toothbrush before? And all these kind of condescending things. And we want to say, like, we don't drink any soda. We we do eat ice cream. Um, we like chocolate chip cookies. But we, we brush and we floss and we do everything that we're supposed to. We just kind of have crummy teeth, right? Just kind of our experience. We hate it when the dentists that we're paying big bucks condescend to us and scold us in this way. But we love when we find a dentist, we will pay big bucks without thinking about it for a dentist who A, knows what they're doing and won't hurt us when they're trying to help us, but who will focus on restoring our dental health to where it's supposed to be, and who will offer us, yes, tips for uh, getting better dental health. Dentists who, let's put it this way, dentists who act like maybe they've even <gasps> had a cavity once or twice in their own lives, right? Would you want a dentist who's never had a cavity or a filling? I'm not sure that you would. Now, I don't know why I switched from eye doctor to dentist metaphors, but here we are. You get my point. In our community life together, we have to become the kind of people who are, at least at first, far more preoccupied and sensitive to our own need and our own sin and our own failures than we are with the sins and failures 
of one another. We have to become the kind of community where it is super safe to confess sin and to repent, where it's not safe to walk around with a self-righteous and judgmental spirit. We must become the kind of church Jesus calls us here in Matthew 7 that is not surprised when broken people fail and fall because we have also become the kind of church full of people who are very aware of their own brokenness and failure. And we can, by God's grace, become the kind of family that helps one another see better. The prerequisites for being a church who helps one another grow in grace. To become a church full of people who are tough on ourselves but tender with one another. It takes something. But we can be this kind of community. And what does it take after all? You know, it's one thing for me to say to you if you come to me with your struggles and your failures to say, hey, look, I've been there too, for you to say that to one another. That's, that helps. To be able to say to one another, look, I was once addicted, I don't know, to drugs or to bitterness or to pornography at one point too. I'm not here to judge you, but I'm here to bless you and to help you. That helps, right? That's a vital part of our growth in grace. But even more fundamentally than we need help, like I just described, we need something more. After all, we don't need a spiritual eye doctor or a spiritual dentist unless we've first had a savior. If we're dead in our sins and trespasses, what good does it do to have a little help with our sins and trespasses? We need a savior. We need somebody who actually is perfect, somebody whose moral perfection allows them to see straight into our moral corruption for what it really is. We need this perfect someone to look at us and to say to us, having looked at us and seen us, to say, I see you. I see you for who you are. And yes, I plan to heal you. I plan to restore your sight, to straighten your teeth or whatever metaphor you like. But more than that, and before all of that, I want you to know this. I see you, and I love you. I see you, and I receive you. I will give you my perfection, and I'll be the one who is justly judged as wicked in your place. I will give my very life for yours. And this is what we've just sung about, isn't it? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. When Jesus comes into our life like this and sees us and knows us and then loves us, then the dungeon of our sin and misery flames with light. And the light of Jesus chases all of that darkness away. We need help, but sister and brother, we need salvation even before that. And in the community of grace, which we're becoming, 
Jesus has chosen and called and deputized all of us, you and me, to first apply that full and judgment-free forgiveness to one another in his name. So implicit in everything that Jesus is saying here is not just don't judge, but rather proclaim my, uh, my judgment of myself and my liberation of you to one another. Apply the judgment-free forgiveness to one another in Jesus' name. And then second, to help one another as one broken woman or man on the mend by God's grace to another to help one another get the gunk that's still in our eyes out of our lives and out of our eyes so that we can see the beauty of Jesus and the marvels of his grace and the hope of glory that we have ahead of us. This is our twin task. Proclaim the judgment-free grace of Jesus and then help one another grow in that same grace. Let me ask you this as we close. Three of my favorite questions to ask whenever we open the Bible together, and it's this. What is God saying to you? Through the words of Jesus here, through our meditation tonight, what is God saying to you? Question number two. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about what he's saying to you? Is the call on your life to look at the people sitting around you and the people in your family and the people on the street with grace instead of judgment? Is the call to go and to reconcile with judgment-free grace and forgiveness to the person who has wronged you? Is the call to proclaim the good news to somebody who is bogged down by their own confrontation with themselves as they look in the mirror and see their sins and failures? What's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? And then last question, who is going to help you? Who is going to help you? Do you need to tell somebody maybe this evening or tomorrow or on a WhatsApp message, hey, I really feel like what God is saying is I've got to go to this person and, and what I've got to do is I've got to reconcile. And so I'm asking you to help me. Would you check in with me at this time next week and make sure I've had the guts to actually go and have that conversation? That's the kind of help we can give one another, right? Maybe it's the help of saying, sister, brother, I'm not perfect, but let me help you with that speck in your eye. By God's grace, I've had that speck in my own eye. Let's get it out together. Who's going to help you receive the good news of Jesus' forgiveness, full and free? Because you know, looking in the mirror, what you're really like. And one of the biggest things that we need help with is understanding that Jesus, in fact, loves us with God's judgment-free grace she showed to us at the cross. What's God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? Who's going to help you? Heavenly Father, as we consider these things, we ask that you would give us grace to see, to see the glory of our Savior 
lifted high on the cross, but also raised to new life and sitting in glory. We pray that we would become our lives individually and our community life together, trophies of his grace, bit by bit being perfected and being made into his likeness. Give us also the grace as you were giving to your son, Heavenly Father, on the mountainside that day, the grace to help sisters and brothers in their growth, not out of judgmentalness, but out of kindness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might become the kind of community that we've dreamed about here tonight. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of one another. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't we respond with worship?